0: Hello students, welcome to the Theo 102 podcast. Need to know more, we are talking about the word revolution. And what
1: a word it is. It is. Hello students.
0: Well, I have to say, first off, welcome back, Dr. Doe. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank <laughs> you.
1: My first video all, all semester. The
0: first lecture of the whole I was, term. I was I was
1: just dominating in the fall and then I went away. But I was always here. My voice was here.
0: How does it feel to be back?
1: Oh, uh, you know, you know, it's a good question. I feel I feel really good. It feels really good.
0: Well, you know, I was so excited for you to do this lecture because it's really where your Field of expertise and the history of Christianity and the development mm-hmm. of of Christian thought and theology and ideas about the Bible intersect. Oh man, it so, all comes together.
1: I mean, basically, what that was in that lecture behind the scenes, you know, is like twenty seven minutes of exact. Like, there's a course that I have taught periodically um, called Theo two ninety Biblical Interpretation. That lecture is a 27 minute version of half of the course, Mm. just like unpacking like all that stuff. Yeah. But it's an issue that's super near and dear to my heart. There's also like ancient interpretation, which is totally, which is in some ways really different. I mean, that's part of the, you know, the issue, the, the rupture, the thing that happened, but, this, uh, this idea of modernity, which you introduced so skillfully several lectures back, <laughs> is the context in which all this happens, right?
0: Yeah. So I, I want to ask you more about this. Um, so the word for the week is revolution, and you were talking about a revolution in the way that Christians, um, particularly in our corner of the world, mm-hmm. um, but really Christians in, in all industrialized corners of, of the the globe, start thinking about the Bible and how to read the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd love for you just to say more about what you think is revolutionary about our approach to the Bible, as opposed to mm. you know the centuries and centuries and centuries before.
1: Yeah, I maybe I, I maybe I could just kind of talk my way into it by saying I think one issue, one big one biggie, is the issue of control.
0: Mm.
1: Like who gets to control it? Wow. And you know, granted those of you who are more obsessed with being competitive and controlling things like I am um, <laughs> might, might feel more that this issue is like resonates with you more near and dear to your heart. Like why that would be a problem. Okay. But like, I think it just is like, it's an issue of control. Like who controls the text,
0: mm-hmm. right? Like
1: who gets to say like what, you know, like you have the students, like if you live in a, a suite or a dorm or an apartment situation, you this this like politics broadly defined as like, how is power distributed and who gets to do what, who gets to say is played out like every day, right? Yeah. And so this gets played out in, in governments. This gets played out in like ant colonies and with dogs and packs out in the woods. It just seems to be like a feature of human life, this issue of like, and I think that that issue in the ancient world control was, I think more conceived of as a product of your group or your family. Or identity, your like heredity, kind your of heredity, thing. right? Yes. Your family or even like the place where you lived and you know, you're just kind of like part of a bigger thing. And these revolutions like the French Revolution, the American Revolution, I mean, think of what they are. Like, like think of the image of a king. Yes. Like what's the imagery of a king? A king is like a king is on the throne, right? Uh-huh. And what do you do when you come into the throne room and the king is there?
0: Oh, you have to you you have to do all sorts of weird body language yep. to show that the yes. king is above you, yes. right? It the, might be a curtsy or a yep. bow. The
1: king sits higher than you. You, you can't bow. turn
0: around. You can't turn your back.
1: And actually that image of a king is on biblical terms, and this is this is an awkward analogy I'm about to make, but because it's like, it, it, it will get your soul all tied up. But I think this <laughs> is the problem of modernity. That image of a king. Uh
0: huh.
1: I mean, I don't know. Have you ever lived in a monarchy, under a monarchy before, Dr. Uh, Bain?
0: Zero times in my life. Zero
1: times under a monarchy. I'm I've 100%
0: not, American made. I have
1: I have not li- I've never lived in a monarchy. But here's the thing about a monarchy, and, and even the body language you described, the attitude toward the king, that is the biblical image for God. God yeah. is a king. So how do, you train, how do you train yourself to worship God correctly in your political community? Well, if you have to bow to a king, I mean, this is the ancient way of thinking about leadership right. within a theological structure. If you have to bow to your king and the king is higher than you and the king says what to do and the king has power over your life and death, that's a great image for God because that's the biblical proclamation of who God is. Mm-hmm.
0: Yes. Well, Jesus is always talking about a kingdom. Jesus is talking about a kingdom. And Revelation tells us that he is the coming king. That's
1: right. Revelation is a beautiful book that's full of this like high-handed, hierarchical, royal imagery. It's, Mm -hmm. you know, and the gospels have a twist on it, but it's, it's gorgeous. Okay. Now think about a revolution like the American Revolution or the French Revolution. Yeah. Now that's like the king off with his head.
0: You know- (laughs) <laughs> right? Okay, so I wish we could right? talk about this so much more. I'm just gotta I gotta interject here because yep. I get so energized by this. She's conversation. so ex- I can see Doctor Payne I'm is really so excited, excited right now. about this because yep. it is such a major theological move, right? To say so, it, you're you're totally right. In fact, there's all this recorded history of American Christians because the vast majority of people in the in what became the United States were Christian, right. wrestling with that theological problem because for centuries they had this idea, this classification, this theology called the divine right of kings, which is that God had ordained, in this case, the king of England yep. to be the king. Yep. And through his blood, his actual bloodline, that like the rule of God was established in the oh, world.
1: Yeah. You got to make it real. You get
0: it in the blood. Yeah. So you got to like. It's
1: not a symbol. It's real. It's to, it's absolutely real. To, that's how you do it.
0: Right. And to overthrow yeah. that, you have to make a pretty strong theological case. This famous guy named Thomas Paine. No relation. No
1: relation to your husband. Um, uh, nope, no. Payne. Who's also
0: named Thomas Paine. That's his name. No relation. Different spelling. Different spelling. Yeah. 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 Um, the uh American revolutionary Thomas Paine m- went to great lengths to make this argument that in in fact, having an earthly king was against the Bible, but he had to do some fancy yeah. work because the Bible has a king. So um, let me ask you. Let Lots me ask you this: yeah. the the type of biblical um, scholarship that you talk about is that the the same like striking revolution that happened, like the idea that we're like upending a king. Whoa, that's major. Yeah. Are we upending like in the modern era how we see the Bible? Is it is it that different?
1: I think I think in some cases it is that different, yeah. I mean, w- one word you could use as a keyword to think about how people interpreted the Bible in the ancient world is the word allegory. Mm. And we talked about allegory last fall. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Allegory meaning just broadly conceived and allegory just means... The words on the page are the words on the page, which is like the literal reading. You know, uh, Dr. Payne walked into the room just means that a character in the story named Dr. Payne walked into a room. It doesn't mean that like some idea entered your soul or whatever, and Dr. (laughs) Payne is a symbol of that idea, and the room is in fact your soul. That would be (laughs) allegory, (laughs) Okay. right? So, and basically the allegory is the church's interpretation. Allegory was always like one of the dominant methods of the church. They also did literal readings, but like spiritual readings, you might say. It's like, have a lot in common with allegory, right? It's like- The words on the page are never just the words on the page. However, with the birth of modernity, I mean, one thing you can do if you're someone like, I don't know, Martin Luther or others, you can go on a war against allegory because allegory is one of the key techniques of the church. And so if you go on a war against Mm. allegory, you're doing a power struggle over who gets to control the text.
0: So let me just hear you. So this is a fascinating, because I love the history of like the exchange of power. So I love political history Mm -hmm. because what you're saying is that, through the force of his argument Luther some fairly successfully mm-hmm. upended the power like the the very traditional power of the church yeah at least in his corner of the world it didn't work everywhere
1: well it's like it's like what if what if our families got together with all of our kids right every Friday, they're wild they're wild it'd be crazy but yeah. what if our families got together every Friday and had game night and what yeah. if and what if and what if what if you insisted every Friday that we played chess and you're really good at chess uh-huh and I'm good at chess too, but I'm, I'm not. I'm
0: actually not good at chess. But and keep I'm, going.
1: you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm okay, but I'm not as good as you. Okay. And we're just losing, losing, losing. It's not like chess is a bad game. And in fact, I love chess. <laughs> right. But you know, what if that was a big problem? Like this idea, it's like, what if we start suggesting a different game to play? Ooh. You know what I mean? Like, I think it's something like that. All like, of a
0: sudden it's checkers.
1: And then you'd have to, this, this analogy now gets like stretched out. Like what if whoever won the chess game at family game night also got a thousand dollars of the other person's money (laughs) or something like that? You know, it would be in my interest to change the game at some point, you know? So I do think if you thought of it like on this kind of game language, which sociologists and psychologists sometimes use to talk about like play and game language Mm -hmm. for like how we negotiate power and live our lives, this is getting really heady really fast here. Love it. That's... You could look at it that way. So there's a different game. So this other game, like I described in in the lecture, it could involve things like philology, like really careful attention to words and creating dictionaries, even doing archeology, span looking at manuscripts could involve history, right? And so history, if allegory is kind of like an ahistorical technique, in other words, allegory is something you can just do and like the realities exist timelessly in the heavenly realm. Yeah. History is all about the word context.
0: Can I ask like a really- ticky tacky question, yeah. which is what is exciting to me is how generative this change is, like how it, it gives life to all these new things. Mm-hmm. Can you just tell me like what kind of jobs are associated with this new way of looking at the Bible? <laughs> like it creates all these new, new you just were listing like totally. Po- totally new fields of work and scholarship and industry.
1: Well, that's right. And, and not to say like somehow... Oh, with the birth of modernity, suddenly there were millions of people who were archaeologists and higher critics and <laughs> philologists. But like, take a university for example. Right. A university, like the birth, like universities were born in the medieval period. Mm-hmm. So medieval period, people were doing all. Think this, Hogwarts. This is where I think you've been great this whole semester, Doctor Payne is an historian, pointing out every once in a while how it seems like sometimes things make like a radical shift on the year. 1054 or whatever but really sometimes things are slower and more complex right so like the medieval scholars were doing word studies they were doing philology they were compiling dictionaries they were kind of like laying the groundwork for what would become the other kinds of critical things people could do with the bible so that existed and medieval period had universities but this really gets kicked into high gear really in Europe, really in modernity in the 18th century, say like in Germany in the 1700s. This was a place where people were just like
0: Germany's like home base for home modern base, intellectual life. Yeah,
1: and so it created jobs. It created like, it created higher learning. It, it created education. All these
0: weird fields.
1: All these fields like classics and like you know, literary studies and psychology and sociology and, 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 and just like, but basically like history. I mean, history wasn't an academic field before modernity.
0: It's so fascinating because a lot of the majors that you students have right now or are pursuing mm-hmm. were invented in this time period. Basically. Totally.
1: And they were invented in a way. I mean, this is where, this is where I think, okay, to back to the King metaphor, this is where this gets awkward. I want to tie that to, to what you oh, just Oh, good, 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 good. Why is that king? Why did I say that king metaphor was awkward? Well, because we treasure most of us probably listening to this treasure the idea of like a democracy, but think about a democracy. Think about what it does to power and what it says about who's in charge.
0: It's fascinating. Is that
1: a good model for God? Does that train you in your political and social life to worship God? Or does it train you to do something else, which you in fact love and which is great? But then, like you said, you had these bridge figures who tried to say, oh, no, 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 it's totally fine, but it's haunting, right? Well, so,
0: wait, wait, let me okay. say, because then more. I want to ask you your all thoughts right. on this. So the, the argument, the Christian argument for democracy mm-hmm. is not that God has selected one person to right. lord over, right. but that every human being has within them. It's like Quaker argument, right? Sure. Like the, the light or the value that God gives right. every each individual. So it's sort of like all the people become kings. Well-
1: Exactly. Of course. And there are arguments like that, but I mean, if you want to have a haunted night, just go and ask the question. What do you, what do you actually think about that idea that every person has within them, the ability to divine
0: life? Well, I don't think that's true. Do you really, (laughs) right? You
1: (laughs) you know, I, you know, I saw an article, this will only appeal to the football fans out there. Sorry for a football joke. I'll Uh, just do it. Okay. But I saw it on the onion. The onion is a satirical uh, newspaper. Um, The Onion has this article, which it has a picture of a crowd at a football game Mm -hmm. and it has fans of the Cleveland Browns. The Cleveland Browns are a football team that's always losing, okay? And the headline for it reads something like, Apparently, even Cleveland Browns fan made in the image of God.
0: Oh, <laughs> sad. <laughs> so,
1: you know, right? Like, that's a joke version yeah, of it. Yeah. But what about like a real version? Like, look at the kind of stuff that's happened, say, in American politics recently. Do we all agree that everyone has an equal right to say like the direction of the country? Like, clearly there's a problem with
0: yeah, this. Yeah, it's a constant right? set of arguments. So, so, the,
1: so the issue back then to the invention of the university and your comment about students' majors is, my connection is this. In a way, the creation of those fields was a dethroning of the Bible as the central authority over everyone's life, right? Because oh, you don't, yeah. you're you not just going to be like, hey, you don't need to, you know— what you have mental health problems? You have serious issues for which you need to see maybe a psychiatrist, maybe a maybe seek counseling. No, no, no. Just consult the scripture. I mean, maybe some maybe some people listening or, have heard some. Or, go, like to
0: that. Pastor, or go to your pastor. Or go to your pastor. Yeah, exactly.
1: So it's about authority. It really is about power. And these new fields created new power networks,
0: competition, and
1: these revolutions were just like. I mean, the French Revolution just like shook Europe.
0: Can I ask you, you know? a question about so the reading is a lot about the French Revolution. Right. You talk a lot about the development of higher criticism. And I would love for you to talk about. So, you know, the university is it's set in Germany. Mm-hmm. The, the the hub of, of like modern intellectual life is Germany, but eventually all that stuff comes to the US. It's oh, yeah. slow. Oh, it yeah. it takes a little while, but eventually it gets yeah. here. Tell us what happens. Oh man. When this higher criticism oh, stuff man. comes to the US.
1: Well, you know, here's one thing about America and Americans and we just got to kind of own it and love it. It's a it. quirk, It's a quirk, <laughs> but like, we are kind of like, we are some blend of like very populist and anti-intellectual as mm-hmm. a country. Mm-hmm. We're, and Europe is like stereotypically the intellectual elitist culture, right? Mm-hmm. Now, granted there are populists There's and anti-intellectual exceptions. in Europe and there are elitists in America. Okay. Um, like me and Dr. Payne, okay? Uh, no, we're not elitist. We're po- totally populist <laughs> as, as, P- as PhD holding college professors. Yeah, but okay. I hate
0: Cheetos anyway. Keep exactly.
1: Going. <laughs> so I think the thing about it is it kind of lands with a thud. And obviously, there are some people who are really excited and they're like, yeah, this is awesome. Now, let's just be clear. I mean, just like people like Thomas Paine and others made that bridge argument to say, yeah, the loss of a king doesn't have to be a loss of everything that's theologically good about how we train ourselves to worship God. It can be great, and there are reasons. So too, people could receive this kind of Scholarship, these new techniques, all this stuff, and say, This is great for congregations. This is great for people in church. This is great for preaching. Mm-hmm. Have you ever been in church, oh, student, and heard a pastor refer to like the Hebrew or Greek? Meaning right, of word? right. Have you ever heard someone say, Yeah, but you know what? This is what it says. But we but need to this really look is at what the, it. We need to look at the context behind this. Whenever you start saying we need to look at the historical context, you're making an appeal to a higher critical technique of reading the Bible. And that seems to have benefits for the community. So this isn't all just like anti Christian kind of stuff. But you can see how it could be taken that way, especially if, you know, it it depends what gets broken in the process, you know?
0: I think of this as, in some ways, as an extension. This is like peak Protestantism, right? (laughs) Yeah, how so? Well, because I think about it in terms of like, what what was one of the big... Um, emphases of the Protestant tradition w- right. was the idea that Pete, like that the laity would read the scriptures, right? right? So Protestant countries, Protestants in general really emphasize literacy. They taught their children to read just so they could read the Bible, you right. know, stuff like that. Um, and so in some ways, this higher critical method of interrogating the Bible, using like the new technologies and the new sciences available seems like a kind of a, the next logical step. Right. And then, but then it's like, well, what do you do with the other sources of, of authority? We talked about the Wesleyan read of the scriptures includes tradition. It includes like experience with the Holy spirit. Sure. Um, this seems to emphasize the reason angle.
1: Right. And the individual, I mean, you could think of it like polarities. Like you can always take a situation and be like, okay, there's an extreme on this side. And then on the other side, there's this other extreme. So You could run with this kind of like way of reading the Bible, just reading it as though it were any ancient collection of epic poetry narrative,
0: which many people do,
1: which many people do. And people started to really do publicly for the first time, really, in the 1700s, Mm. um, 1800s people. It was still considered pretty taboo to do that back then, yeah. but people started to do it. And of course the French in the French Revolution, you had some famous atheists that were like, you know, they had the criticisms, but you started to get, especially in the late 1800s, people were kind of coming more out with it. But for the most part, people did this within a Christian frame, you know? However, as you may know from your own life of church or experience, sometimes Christians do things and you're like, how dare you? That's that's against the spirit of our thing. You know, yeah. the thing we're doing. And I think some people definitely, like for instance, uh, a controversy I know that 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 you're well versed in as a Uh, an historian of 20th century American religion is just this fundamentalist modernist thing, which I brought up kind of quickly at the end of the lecture, just to say the fundamentalist approach was one way you could do it. You could Mm -hmm. be like, okay, we're going to bat against you on the terms of reason. And we are going to show that in fact, like for example, Moses really was the author of the Torah. And then you do your own like scientific kind of, I use the phrase, by the way, in the video scientificy with The Why at the end, because it's not quite, I, I do it a little bit as an inside joke, and the joke is this it's not quite, it's not hard science. It's not like an experiment in a lab. It doesn't have that kind of objectivity. And by the way, even, quote, hard sciences don't have that kind right. of objectivity either. Right. That's
0: a good, that's an important point But to make. there's
1: But there are variations here on this, right? And so it's not like count the number of atoms or electrons in the nucleus of the thing. It's not like that, but so it's scientific-y. So fundamentalists played this game too. And they were like, look, you got your fancy new in- criticisms and interpretation. Well, you know what? We're going to show through the study of language and so on that that the tradition was right all along.
0: Yeah, you know, what's really fascinating to me is that I think of this revolution in in how we think about the Bible as a sword that, mm. went, that went through a bunch of American Protestants in the mid, early to mid 20th century. Mm. And we still, we kind of live in the wake of that. So totally. students, the people who thought, yeah, the Bible should be, um, we should use science or like the scientific method to interrogate the Bible. And we think that that upholds things like a seven day creation, like the virgin birth, like right, that kind right, of stuff. Right. Those ones tended to go by the name fundamental and this was an intellectual movement that actually started it at Princeton. So it was like an elite conversation back in the day. Mm-hmm. Then the other folks who said, well, yeah, we're going to use science to interrogate the Bible. And we actually think that the virgin birth doesn't seem plausible, that a seven day creation doesn't seem scientifically plausible. Right. Um, and also most of them, we still believe in in Jesus as an important figure and the savior. Those ones tended to label themselves as modernist or liberal mm-hmm. and
1: I called it theological liberalism. Yeah,
0: and so those groups still exist and you tend to see (laughs) more more liberal modernist types in mainline Protestant traditions. So like United Methodists and uh, Presbyterian uh, churches of the USA and Mm -hmm. some um, forms of Baptists. And then you tend to see fundamentalists in like, uh, groups like there's a lot of fundamentalist-ish type groups in the Southern Baptists, um, mm-hmm. some Nazarenes. So like right. these are still conversations that are going on today. Not everybody got swept up into it, but you can see how like th- changing the way that you look at the Bible would naturally have some theological implications.
1: Oh, totally. And it's about like you said, you brought up like evolution and seven day creation. I mean, obviously now there's like with with the late nine, nine or mid late nineteenth century Darwinian concepts, you have now another option for how to read the church had always had allegorical readings of Genesis one that existed alongside, I think probably in the early church, less prominent literal readings, but they didn't have science. And so there was nothing really to fight over in that sense. Um, but once you get that going right now, you've got another thing in a lot of ways, a philosopher, I know we both have read and and care about Charles Taylor. Mm. Um, talks about this in a book called um, A Secular Age. It's this huge, long book that I'm so proud that I read one time. (laughs) He basically describes modernity as an explosion or a supernova of options. Mm. Like think about the options you have now. Mm -hmm. Like if you're like really into a particular cartoon or something, you can go online and you have a huge community for that. And now you have the birth of like all these communities,
0: mm-hmm. you know,
1: that you have and those communities, you can now get support and all kinds of things for that. And so science introduces new things and just all of this stuff. There's so much that we could talk about here, but obviously we're just kind of skimming over the surface and, you know.
0: And if you need to know more, there's a lot more oh, to a, know. There's a lot yeah, more. Yeah, yeah. But it's... It, it- I'm glad that we had a chance to just talk through that. One of the things that I think students, a lot of times students are really overwhelmed when they're Mm. first introduced to these ideas. Oh, I was.
1: I was excited, but totally overwhelmed.
0: Yeah, it is overwhelming. It's just objectively overwhelming. And it also can be a little like, sometimes it can take our focus off of just like the person of Jesus and the idea that like the Christian life is about seeking Jesus as the truth Mm -hmm. uh, in this world. I wonder if we could pray with a figure, um, who a a really important American pastor in the 20th century. So he was ministering around this time Mm -hmm. and he has a great prayer. Um, he's an African American preacher who was actually a mentor to Martin Luther King, um, junior, and was a really important theologian in the 20th century. And he has this simple prayer about truth and light. And I thought it would kind of center us back yeah. on what's kind, what's like the really big important stuff yeah, that this, we need to keep in our minds. This
1: is Howard Thurman. Howard I, Thurman. I seek truth and light from his Meditations of the Heart from 1953. So now we're into the 1900s. It's kind of exciting. Yeah.
0: I will keep my heart open to truth and light.
1: I will keep my heart open this day to all things that commend themselves to me as truth.
0: I will try to increase my sensitiveness to error that it may not enter my heart with its distortions and its falseness.
1: This is not easy.
0: I am never free from the possibility of being mistaken.
1: Deep within myself, I will be still that I may be guided and wizened by the spirit of God.
0: In my own way, I will work out little tests by which I may discern truth from error. Error may enter
1: my mind and heart in many disguises. This I know.
0: My anxieties, my fears, my ambitions, even my hopes and dreams may deceive me into calling truth error and error truth.
1: Always I will seek the honesty and integrity that God yields to those who lay bare their lives constantly before him.
0: I will keep my heart open to truth or to light.
1: There are times when the light burns, which is too bright or when it is too revealing.
0: Somehow I must accustom myself to the light and learn to look with steadiness at all that it discloses.
1: I will not yield to the temptation to regard the light in me as being all the light there is.
0: Always I will let my steps be guided by such light as I have at any particular moment.
1: Even in darkness, I will learn to wait for the light, confident that it will come to cast its shaft across my path at the point of my greatest and most tragic need.
0: Because God is the God of darkness, as well as the light, I shall be unafraid of the darkness.
1: I will keep my heart open to truth and light.